If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. goodness hello and welcome thank you for tuning in and welcome to the july 12th 2021 edition of imru radio magazine we've been out front and out loud since 1974 when i was 12 striving each week to amplify the voices of the lgbtqia2s plus communities i am Carell here in the city of las vegas where it's 111 Tonight, we're going to follow Steve Pride navigating the poetic waters of a Rod McEwen birthday party on the show. We're going to join Abby Dees as she goes to the dogs and cats at an animal shelter in Los Angeles. We are going to hear a Gaytino report on a controversial artist. And first, we, it is July 6th, you know, recently, and that was Frida Kahlo's birthday. So what could be more perfect than revisiting the 2002 Julie Taymor-directed film, Frida, starring the sexy Salma Hayek as the iconic bisexual Mexican painter with eyebrows that wouldn't quit. Senor Rivera. Who are you? What do you want? I have something important to discuss with you. Okay, come on up here. No, you come down. Mexican artist Frida Kahlo was born on July 6, 1907. Her amazing life included polio, a broken back, a miscarriage, the loss of a leg, two marriages to muralist Diego Rivera, and countless love affairs with both men and women. Hey, listen, if you think I'm going to sleep with you just because you've taken me under your wing, you're wrong. I was painting murals and womanizing in peace when you came along. Now this life has been brought to the screen in a film called Frida, starring Salma Hayek. This was a story that was important for me to tell. I think it's a story that shows Mexico in a light that it's never seen before. You know, at this particular period of time that Frida Lipton was there, Mexico was the nucleus for a lot of sophisticated minds that were kicked out of their country because they were threatening in some way to their countries. And they came and found refugee in Mexico. So it was a bohemian atmosphere of a group of people that were eager to change the world and have new ideas. And um, I don't think people is often seen in this way. And I, I really wanted to show this part of my country and this extraordinary woman that inspired me because of her courage to be unique, always, in everything she did. Frida Kahlo began to paint in 1925 while recovering from a streetcar accident that left her permanently disabled and in pain for most of her life. Her work was personal and primitive. Frida had a style of painting. She did this painting that nobody liked. It's not that she didn't pursue it, nobody liked it. 
And uh, at the time, it was the time of the muralists. And all these people were painting the reality of the country and the walls of the country, and there were social big concepts. And Frida was making these little, very personal portraits. And uh, she was never influenced by what was going out out there. She never tried to paint things that people would like and buy. She never tried to paint too much that she would become more popular. She painted when she felt like it. She painted what she felt like it. A couple of times she did paint to try to survive. When she got a divorce from Diego in 1940, this is the period of time where she painted the most, 1940 to 1941. And um, she really wanted to be financially independent from Diego. She was not. She really struggled. She didn't really sell that many. And uh, she did also some portraits of other people, not just anyone, but people that she did care for, uh, trying to achieve this financial. But she was never terribly aggressive because she was never really ready to compromise what she did. And the only person that really understood how genius she was was Diego. And when Diego dies, uh, he leaves a document that says that the house that they lived in should become the Frida Kahlo Museum. And it is thanks to Diego that today Frida is who she is, because otherwise she would have never even had a museum. And um, now this museum is very, very visited by a lot, a lot of people. It's very popular in Mexico. In 1953, when Frida Kahlo had her first solo exhibition in Mexico, a local critic wrote, it is impossible to separate the life and work of this extraordinary person. Her paintings are her biography. In making the film, director Julie Tamar used this to her advantage. Unlike many other artist stories, where you don't know why a person paints a painting, you really can't tell me why someone goes into an abstraction like Pollock or why the sunflowers are painted by, except that they're pretty, by Van Gogh, Frida Kahlo painted her own life. So there was something easier quite honestly, about that, because you could see the moments where the paintings must have come into fruition in her mind. So I went through all of the paintings, and I picked eight or nine that I thought would be great moments to almost end a chapter of her life or begin the next one, like the wedding portrait or the cropped hair. And because you can see in the history, you can see in her story that that happened after Diego had an affair with her sister Christina and she cut her hair. I could find the physical landscape to show the mental, interior landscape of what was going on. And I thought, there's nothing more boring than to just have somebody with a paintbrush at a canvas. It doesn't tell you why and how they paint those strokes or those subject matters. So though you see that occasionally, it's not the dominant experience of her as an artist. The experience of Frida as an artist to see her imagination opening up. And you understand it because you understand the environment from which this idea sprung. And later I figured if I could put those pieces together in the sophisticated, naive style of Frida, through animation, through hand-painted animation, through puppet animation. When you finally see the paintings, the audience maybe would say, oh, I understand why she painted her Tejuana dress in the middle of New York City skyline. And it's not just a painting. You go back to the story that made this painting happen. So I, I try really to do it in her style, which I think is charming, beautiful, naive, and very wicked. Although the film focuses on Frida's relationship with her husband, it doesn't shy away from her bisexuality. 
And like I said before, you know, when you take a character, you have to embrace it for everything that she was. And that is a very important part of who she was. It would be a betrayal not to include that because she had meaningful relationships with women. I think they were terribly important. Frida Kahlo has become a feminist icon, so it's appropriate that women were the driving force in bringing her story to the screen. This is the first time where I think being a woman had an effect with Salma, with the other women involved in telling the story. I hired a female. We had Sarah Green. We had a, a line producer, our producer. There were many women involved. First, we thought it was going to be a problem in Mexico, quite the opposite. They all said, oh, it's much better working with women. They loved working with us. Also, there's very many personal things that Salma and I talked about as women. And it was a, it was a very charged feminine environment, but I think it's a good thing for Frida. And according to Salma Hayek... Uh, what goes through my mind is that nothing would make Frida happier than through telling her story to have, for the first time, a female director win an Oscar. Frida Kahlo died on July 13, 1954. Although she painted in obscurity during much of her life, in death her reputation as a painter has eclipsed that of her famous husband. You paint her too, Mrs. Rivera. Just killing time. She's much better than me. You'll see. Frida is a Miramax release directed by Julie Tamar, starring Selma Hayek, Alfred Molina, Jeffrey Rush, Antonia Banderas, Ashley Judd, and Edward Norton. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Salías del templo un día llorona cuando al pasar yo te vi. Salías del templo un día llorona cuando al pasar yo te vi. Hermoso huipil llevabas, llorona, que la virgen te Hermoso huipil. Frida is available to stream on Hulu, HBO Max, Amazon Prime, or to rent on YouTube, Google Play, and Vudu. Rod McEwen was an American poet, a singer, a songwriter, an actor, and one of the best-selling poets in the United States during the late 1960s. Now, once upon a time, Steve Pride was invited to his celebrity-laden birthday party, which surprised everybody. Uh, <laughs> luckily, he took a recorder, which probably surprised them more. <laughs> In 1950, Rod McEwen coined the phrase, make love, not war, and it became a rallying cry for both the Korean and Vietnam conflicts. So it is oddly serendipitous that on the night another war is launched, I find myself attending a party for McEwen. Just as our interview was to begin, McEwen has been whisked back outside to taste the paparazzi. But the night is young, and there's a handsome man at the bar. Harry Hamlin. Well, I tell you, you know, when I was in college and before, Rod McEwen was my hero, and still is. But uh, he, he set the tone for much of my formative years. Yeah, absolutely. My name is Dom DeLuise, and I'm here with my son, Michael. Obviously, a lot of people have a giant amount of respect for Rod McEwen. He is the best. And we need more people like him now that the world is in such turmoil. The fact that we have a man who believes that tenderness is the way to live instead of what's going on today. I mean, it really is so scary. As we drove down here, we were very aware that the war was, was imminent. I'm with Buddy Hackett. With everything that's going on right now, is this the perfect time for the return of Rod McEwen to the concert stage? This I can't tell you. I know 
what we think is going on in the world goes on all the time. It's just closer to home this time. But if we take the time to think of the people starving and the fact that China now has more than a million cases of AIDS when last year they only had 100,000, it's just, if you don't write a little poetry and if you don't tell a few jokes, the thought of it's going to kill you. Phyllis Diller is not just a fan of Rod McEwen, she's a good friend. We've known each other for 50 years. When he was 18 years old, he was working at a radio station in the Bay Area where he had this very successful show. He was writing poetry and he wrote every week, he wrote a whole new show. And I fell in love with him then and I've been in love with him ever since. This is This Way Out, which is a gay and lesbian show. Do you have a shout out to any of your gay and lesbian fans out there? Well, yes. Live the great life and have a lot of fun. Hi, uh, this is uh, Red Buttons. What did you want to know? Rod McEwen. Why are you a fan of Rod McEwen? I never heard of Rod McEwen. I just saw people coming to a party and I just jumped in. And you are? Sally Kirkland. I've heard of you. Oh, I hope so. 91 movies. Okay. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. We had, go on, go on. Tom, what are the rest of the words? We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. Okay, in French. Je m'appelle ton. I am finally back with Rod McEwen. Rod, where have you been? And I don't mean tonight. I mean, you've been out of the public eye for a long time. I have. I went through a clinical depression, and uh, they don't know how to um, diagnose that. And so it was, in a way, it was kind of up to me. One morning I woke up and said to myself, what the hell do you have to be depressed about? And the answer was nothing. And, um, and so I got over it. That's about it. Well, it took me 10 years. I grew up in Florida in the 1970s, and as I recall, you were one of the loudest voices raised against Anita Bryant and her Save the Children campaign. Don't drink the orange juice. I beg you, please. Don't drink the orange juice. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I, I don't like anyone who's against human rights, and uh, I just felt what she was saying, the fact that nobody was replying to it and nobody was challenging her was wrong. And so... Uh, um, I'm, I'm a friend to anyone who's struggling for human rights. That reminds me, you are also famous for a somewhat melancholy, but a really poignant song about being gay in the 1960s called The Ballad of the Sad Young Men. I wish I'd written that. I didn't. I was the first person to record it, but that was written by Fran Landsman and Tommy Wolfe. Uh, they wrote it years before, but it wound up in a Broadway show that's called The Nervous Set, and uh, they sent it to me and... And I recorded I recorded it a couple times, and I love that song. What do you think of the strides we've made in terms of gay rights? Well, I think, you know, I think gay rights have made some progress, not enough, but I think it's like anything else. It's slow. I don't think blacks have made the kind of progress they should. I don't think women have made the kind of progress. I led the first Women's Liberation Day parade in Sydney, Australia, and um, those are... Civil rights are really important to me. I'm going to be 70 next month, and I've been blessed with a wonderful life, and uh, 
I've come up at a time when all kinds of changes were going on. I know that the kids of today are impatient. Uh, they have a right to be, but it'll all work out in the end. I think it will because uh, we're all human beings. Nothing more, nothing less. We're not angels, we're not desperados, we're human beings. We're not straight, we're not gay, we're not women, we're not men. We're people, we're human beings who need to be accorded the same rights and privileges as every other human being on the face of the earth. I'm surprised that so many of my old friends have come out on a night like this when I guess war has started. And um, I worry about us, you know, the old men of this country, sending our children off to fight in, uh, in battles. Uh, I don't want anyone to die on my behalf. I'm capable of doing that myself when the time comes. Mr. McEwen, could I talk you into doing a reading of my favorite poem, Creed? I can almost read it from memory, but not quite. I'm putting on my glasses. It doesn't matter who you love or how you love, but that you love. For in the end, the act of loving any man is the act of loving God. The good in men is all the God there is. And loving is a contribution to that good and to that only God. And I believe that with my heart. There were a few questions I had that remain unanswered. I'm not sure if Rod McEwen is gay, straight, or bisexual. I'm also not sure that it matters. I am sure he is a good friend to our community, and his emergence from retirement returns a much-needed voice to the world stage. For his is a special gift that puts into words and music what we all are thinking and hoping and dreaming. This is Steve Pride in Hollywood. Thanks for listening. I go to Florida a lot Because the weather's always hot There's pretty girls and pretty boys As many Jews as there are coys As many blacks as there are whites As many days as there are nights As many straights as there are gays Yes, they have fun in lots of ways Ah, but don't drink the orange juice I beg you don't drink the orange juice. Now, after quite a life, Rod McEwen died in 2015. Although he never came out as specifically gay or bi, he did explain his sexuality with this quote. I can't imagine choosing one sex over the other. That's just too limiting. I can't even imagine saying I have a preference. <laughs> well, that's ambivalence for you. Don't go away. We'll be back right after this quick break. Scott Berg, Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in Connecticut in 1949, A. Scott Berg's interest in writing would spring from a high school research project about F. Scott Fitzgerald. After all, his mother had named him after this famous author. Berg read all of Fitzgerald's works and soon matriculated at Princeton University because it was Fitzgerald's alma mater. His senior thesis about Fitzgerald's editor, Maxwell Perkins, led to a full-length biography which won a National Book Award. Scoring again, his third biography, Lindbergh, won a Pulitzer. In 1982, Berg wrote the story for the groundbreaking 20th Century Fox movie, Making Love. Controversial at the time, the film was the first major studio drama to address gay love and the effect that being closeted and coming out has on a marriage. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Wallace.
Hello, I'm Randall Kleiser, director of Grease, Blue Lagoon, White Fang, and It's My Party, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, now in its 40th year. Welcome back. I am Carell in Las Vegas, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Next, we have an encore of a classic gay Tino report from Dan Guerrero. And best of all, I hear there's some controversy involved, so let's get right to it. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gay Tino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my guest, Alma Lopez Gaspar de Alba. Alma is a highly visible and influential Chicana feminist activist artist. She may be most famous or infamous for her controversial digital print, Our Lady, that brought her national and international attention, including from the Catholic Church, and not in a good way. Bienvenida, you naughty girl. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being here. You have such a fascinating and eclectic background, not only your art and within your art, but as an educator and so many things. But there's a quote that I read where you say that your art is filtered through a radical Chicana feminist lesbian lens. What does that mean exactly? I was born in Mexico and raised in Los Angeles since I was four years old. So I grew up on both sides of the border, basically, looking at cultural images like La Virgen de Guadalupe, the calendarios. And so when I grew up, and started doing my own work, I realized that I was actually looking at them really differently. And that way of looking at them differently was that I was looking at them as a woman, as a feminist, and as a lesbian. So the images that I make have that in there. These images of La Virgen, the Virgin Mary, from both sides of the border, they were similar and they were different. Because you must have seen the Virgin Mary version, and then you would see the Virgen de Guadalupe on both sides. Same woman, but it's a different portrait of her. Yeah. Well, actually, that's where lots of people get a little mistaken. The Mm -hmm. Virgin Mary and the Virgen de Guadalupe are two very separate individuals. Right. The Virgin Mary, if you look her up, even just on Wikipedia, you'll see exactly that where she comes from, even the names of her parents and grandparents. With the Virgen de Guadalupe, she's very specific to Mexico City, and she's very specific to a time in Mexico City when it had already been a decade of genocide from the Spaniards and the Catholics when they landed in Mexico 1519, and then the genocide started pretty much right away, and then she appears in 1531. Virgin Mary was, reportedly, a real woman with a background in history, whereas La Virgen de Guadalupe was a miracle. She appeared. She was not, as far as we know, a flesh-and-blood woman. So the two different things. Yeah, they're both very mysterious ladies. So you were born in Los Mochis, Sinaloa. You described seeing the the Virgen and all those images from both sides of the border. Is that what led you to create your controversial digital print, Our Lady? Definitely. I think that Our Lady was inspired by my experiences as a Mexican-born Chicana growing up on both sides of the border. 
and seeing her not just in my home in Mexico and in Los Angeles, but also in the community, right? I mean, you go practically to any street in South L.A. or East L.A. or pretty much anywhere, and you see her there. I mean, she's so, like, everywhere that you see her on tattoos, on lowrider magazines, on skateboards, on T-shirts. It's just, you know. But tell us why your lady was so controversial. Why was it controversial? And describe the image that led to that controversy. Sure thing. At the time that I was thinking about creating work that was relevant to me and to my experience, I was living in South Los Angeles. And for the first time ever, there were murals that were being tagged in South L.A., which was really weird, right? And also, I was talking with friends who grew up with the Virgen Guadalupe, like myself. And I was also reading the Sandra Cisneros essay, Guadalupe, the Sex Goddess, where she asked if I were to lift her dress, what would I see? And she wasn't trying to be a cochina or anything like that. She was actually trying to really identify with her in a really serious and personal way. And so... When she asked that question, when Sandra Cisneros asked, what would you see if you lifted her dress? My response was, well, roses, of course, because roses are the signature and proof of the apparition of the Virgen de Guadalupe, according to the legend. So I asked two friends who are performance artists, Raquel Gutierrez and Raquel Salinas, if they would mind collaborating with me and doing this image. I wanted to do a contemporary strong Chicana image dressed in roses, not to be the Virgen de Guadalupe, but to be in the throne of the Virgen de Guadalupe. So the image is basically a woman who's standing and she's in a power pose, kind of like the Wonder Woman pose, mm-hmm. right? She has her hands mm-hmm. on her hips. And instead of being dressed in that long kind of outfit that covers everything, she's wearing roses and those roses cover her breasts mm-hmm. and her pelvic area. Right. And then she's also wearing a robe, and the robe is not the typical Virgen de Lupe robe. It's actually the Goyoshauki, the Aztec warrior goddess. And then behind is the flowers of the Virgen de Lupe's dress. Did you think this would be a huge controversial moment? It's not like you were showing her nude or anything really disgraceful, but mm-hmm. did it catch you by surprise? Absolutely by surprise. It's a beautiful woman standing wearing roses and a robe. And then what really surprised me is that I knew about the work of the artist Esther Hernandez and Yolanda Lopez, who did images of the Virgen de Guadalupe, but in really radically different Chicana feminist ways, right? Like Esther Hernandez did the karate virgen, right? So a virgen in a karate kick. And that was in 1976. And Yolanda Lopez did a whole series of Virgen de Guadalupe images where she placed herself, her mother, and her grandmother in the outfits of the Virgen de Guadalupe. And her idea was that she wanted to really elevate the ordinary woman into this really amazing position that the Virgen de Guadalupe holds in uh, many of our communities. And there was no outcry at that time. There was. But nothing compared to yours. Not as big. And I think it's really because we're in a digital age. So 
things happen much faster. People know about things much faster. Well, and faster. yours pushed all the buttons, right? There was community representation, institutional autonomy, because they exhibited Your Lady at the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe. And, of course, an artist's First Amendment rights. So it was all the biggies, you know? It was all the biggies. I mean, it was very similar to the NEA4, the, right. what happened, and what was going on in 89 and 90 with the controversies at the time that had to do with Robert Maplethorpe, Andres Serrano, and the NEA4. Because I guess one of the things that was added is that people knew about not just that I was a woman, that I was a woman living in California versus New Mexico, uh, but also that I was a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And so I think that people saw something completely different in the image because of whatever ideas they have about a Mexican woman lesbian in California. This is Dan Guerrero with The Gaytino Report, and I'm talking to visual artist and educator Alma Lopez. You've established several collaborative arts groups in your long and, and eclectic career and uh, having created murals commissioned by the L.A. Department of Cultural Affairs. There's one in particular I want to talk about, which goes back to the late 90s, which is at the Angeles Mesa Library branch in South L.A., it's important, I feel, because it represents and illustrates a largely unknown historical moment for us, which is the Mendes versus Westminster case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That's actually a really important collaboration that I'm very proud of. It's called Homegirl Productions, and it's with an African-American artist named Noni Olabisi. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she and I still collaborate when there's the opportunity. That was one of our very first murals that we worked on. The idea was that we wanted to see what the commonalities were between both of our black and brown communities in the U.S. The mural is located in a library, part of the Alley Public Library System, mm -hmm. and it's kitty corner to an elementary school. And so the library and the school are called Angeles Mesa Library and School. So our idea was we wanted to find what do we have in common. And of course, what we have in common is the struggles, especially the struggles in education that both of our communities. The um, segregation. Yeah. And yeah. So I had known about the Mendes. Actually, part of the family still lives in Orange County. And so the Mendes were a family that in the 40s during World War II moved from South L.A. to Westminster for a Japanese-American family who were being interned during the whole Japanese mm -hmm. internment mm -hmm. camps. And so they moved to their home to protect their home. And so then what do you do usually when you move into a new neighborhood and you have kids? You right? look for good schools. You for look them. for new school, or the, just even just the nearby school. Mm -hmm. And so the Mendez wanted to enroll their three kids into the nearby school in Westminster, and they were not allowed because they were too dark. And they so they were Mexican and Puerto Rican, right? They were Mexican and Puerto Rican. The mom, uh -huh. Felicita Mendez, was Puerto Rican, and the dad was Chicano. So they were not allowed because they looked too dark. And so they were being sent several miles to another school that really was of like lesser quality and just too far. And so then Mr. Mendez and Mrs. Mendez said they were going to file this case because they didn't want their own children to feel hate in their heart for the children who were going to the nicer nearby school. They wanted their children to feel good about themselves and the other kids. And so then they filed in Los Angeles. And fortunately, their lawyer was Thurgood Marshall, who then was 
significant in the case in Brown versus the Board of Education. Right. And so that case was won. The Mendes versus Westminster was won in 1947. And that case and other cases throughout the nation were the ones that were used in 1954 in Brown versus the Board of Education. Everyone knows about the Brown, but the Mendes kind of got lost in the shuffle there. Yeah, because, you know, it's a local... Southern California case. But it's it's especially important for the Latino community to know that we have stood up many, many, many times, and and so many of those incidents, shall we say, are unknown. And it's really incredible because I didn't find out about the Mendes until I was at university, and I was taking a Chicano Studies course, and there was a mention in a book about the Mendes. It wasn't even a whole book about the Mendes case. And I was like... What? This is huge, right? And really incredibly significant and important. So when Noni and I were working on our mural, we had to go through a whole process of getting approvals from the community and meetings. And we actually encountered a little bit of pushback from some community people who said, this is an important space that we should use and really highlight really incredibly important heroes in our community, like Chavez and Mm -hmm. people like that. And and I thought, yeah, those are great and important people, but what is more incredibly important and significant and not highlighted are the achievements that are done every single day and usually by our parents who Mm -hmm. really struggle to make a better life for all of us, who really encourage us to go further than they did in their education. And so we really felt strongly about highlighting the Mendes case as well as the Brown. And unsung heroes. I mean, God knows Cesar Chavez deserves and Dolores Huerta, they do, but but they are widely known and honored. But what about all these unsung heroes? Right. And what about just being able to have the space to show all of our heroes and the really important people in our community? I know you've been teaching on and off at UCLA since like 2010, I think. Correct. And you're now an assistant professor in residence. Very fancy, very nice. One of the courses you teach is called Queer Art. When I was going to school, the word queer was not a good word. And there were certainly no queer art courses or an LGBT studies department like exists today, which is incredible. And I think in a time when everything is trying to be pushed back and taken away, we have to really celebrate how far our community has come. Both communities, our Latino and our LGBTQ. That's my little soapbox thing. Tell me about the course Queer Art. This course, like my other courses, grows from my own interests. Because like you, growing up, I don't think I saw myself enough reflected in the artwork. And so I found it incredibly important in the courses that I teach that I do stuff that I'm interested in, but that I think are important to highlight. And so this course that I teach at UCLA changes every year. But Hmm. one of the components of it is that the students work on an activist project. And the activist project is a website. So they research different artists, primarily focusing on L.A., who we know or feel or have seen the work and think they're queer artists, and most of them are, Mm -hmm. the ones that we research, and then go national and international. And then each student takes an artist and they research them and they do like a small web page and present on them. And so we have this whole activist website that is part of the class. So it's really about learning more about queer artists. In but that will that website then stay up? Does it, or is it just within your class? I mean, or is this becoming uh, someone could 
go on from anywhere and, and learn about artists from our community that they didn't even know existed. Yeah, they can actually go through my website. It's mm. right now. I, hopefully I'll, I'll have set it up at some point where it's just an independent site in yeah. itself. And so right now they can go through my website, almalopez.com, and then click on my classes, my class projects, and then there is the queer art class. Because again, it's like giving a visibility to people that deserve it that don't necessarily get it. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for being here today. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I've been talking with visual artist and educator Alma Lopez Gaspar de Alba, and a few gracias to my dad, Lalo Guerrero, who wrote and sings our opening theme, Los Chucos Suaves. My producer, Steve Pride, thank you so much. The Gaitino Report is recorded at KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud. Bow, wow, wow, yippee-o, yippee don't you, don't you, don't you go away, because we're going to be right back with a visit to Pound Town after this quick break. The movie, Making Love, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Released in 1982, Making Love was controversial for its time. It tells the story of a married man named Zach, who realizes he's gay, and the love triangle that developed around him, his wife, and another man. The film stars included Michael Ankeen playing Zach, Kate Jackson as the wife, and Harry Hamlin as the other man. Love scenes were shot in shadow. Film historian Vito Russo, author of the book The Celluloid Closet, said that straight movie critics called the film boring and that gay critics who were happy for any attention addressing the subject praised it. The story was written by outwriter A. Scott Berg. Strong at the box office its first week, the movie petered out in the following weeks. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mary Wallace. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? Welcome back. I am Carell, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now, those of us in the LGBTQIA2S plus community have a very special relationship with our pet's child. Just ask Miss Ember sitting right here next to me, honey. It goes everywhere with me. So recent stories of people who have returned their pandemic pets, uh, it's heartbreaking, it's maddening, it's crazy. It's just beyond belief. Once upon a time, Abby Dees went to Pound Town with filmmaker and tireless shelter volunteer J.D. DeSalvatore and filed this report. I, of course, can't go to the Pound because I would end up on a ranch in Montana with 500 dogs. Take it away, Abby. Come here, my little baby. Come here. Did somebody take them out? You're a well-known filmmaker. You're a producer. You are very well-known as an activist. You've really dedicated your life to LGBT activism. So... How is it that we are finding ourselves sitting right here in the East Valley shelter? Well, when the housing crisis, the banking crisis happened in 2008, on the news locally, we called it the fur closure. So I was not involved at all with this kind of stuff. I was very active in the gay rights movement. And everyone had to give up their dogs. It was all over the news. And houses were foreclosed. And my friends that were real estate agents said they'd go to the house to repossess it and the dogs would still be in the backyard. 
it was just a horrible crisis. So I thought, once we got gay marriage, I'm like, okay, what's next? So much needs to be done in the city of Los Angeles. There's so many problems, period. Veterans and poverty and mental illness. And there's just so much that needs help. So I just came down here and I'm like, I'm a filmmaker. Like, what a great way to spend, you know, use your film school experience. And now I'm completely convinced we're going to go no kill. That's my new goal. It's not even a lofty goal. We're just at 10% now. If we can just band together and work hard, I think we can make LA city shelter system no kill. I'm Andrew Brown and I'm a volunteer. He used to be vice president of features casting at Paramount Pictures. And he has given up that life because what we do here is just so much better, right? Well, I gave up that life because I lost the job, but then I found this and I like this better. This shelter for our dogs, we have very good adoption rates, and you can certainly check the LA Animal Services website for the specific statistics. But on average, it's somewhere from like 85 to 90% live release rate. Cats, it's not nearly as high. So we still have a long way to go to go no kill in terms of the cat population, and other shelters are not necessarily having the same live release rates that we are, so it's a huge community problem still. So I usually do, I'm gonna give you a little bag of treats. Let's start here, because there's some cuties here. Baby. So here's their card, so when there's a yellow mark, it's a big yellow bark, that means they bite, but uh, it could mean anything. I took out once 20 of these yellow mark dogs to photograph them, and there was not a single incident. We're looking basically at the kennel where the dogs are, and there are cards with pictures of each dog that's in the kennel, and there's a little mark that's yellow, and it's a behavior mark, basically. It's, yeah, it's, so it, it warns us, like, don't put your fingers in. So for you and I today, when we're going to do a tour, it's a little warning. The yellow mark simply means that somebody has witnessed or claimed that there was a behavioral issue. Could have been the owner who brought the dog in, could have been somebody who found the dog and turned it in, could have been a staff member here. Now, sometimes that means the dog was just having a bad day. So we have to mark it just to kind of protect everybody and make sure that they're cautious. But I always encourage people if they're interested in a dog, just because it has a behavioral mark, don't give up on it. We had a dog recently, he got rescued yesterday by a rescue group, and for six weeks his kennel card had the behavioral mark and it said dog aggressive. That note came from the owner who turned it in, they said he attacks male dogs. Well, after working with the dog for a little while, he did not seem dog aggressive to me, so we started exploring it and introducing him to dogs and got to the point where we had him in playgroup, running off leash in the yard, playing great with every single dog he met, and the dog was by no means dog aggressive. So after that, we got the words taken off, but you can never take off the behavioral mark. So the moral of that story is if there's a dog that's sort of captured your heart, investigate, ask. Meet the dog for yourself, see how the dog acts with you, because that's what matters. So the most important thing here is that this is the degree to which the volunteers at the shelter and the staff go to work with the animals. Because you can see even on that yellow mark, it says scared. So what that tells us is this dog is fine, but be careful because if it gets scared, it might nip you. And it's a tiny dog. But this is the degree that volunteers will go through to get a dog help and get rescue. While we were just having this conversation, a big, sort of a pit bull mix or someone sort of jumped up to hug me. Look at that looks like a mastiff. So who's mastiff, yeah. And we're a city shelter, so unlike a rescue, people just come in and adopt. We don't screen them. So anybody can walk off the street and take an animal home if they pay the adoption fee. Rescues tend to screen their adopters, but here we this is actually as nice as it looks. This is a government city organization that your taxpayers 
pay for. You know, it's animal control. So it's just an added perk that we have all these wonderful programs and then we're doing all this stuff. And the shelter, as you can see, looks great, right? It's not... It's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's... So here's some cats. Oh, because I'm a lesbian. cats. In the summer, uh, I looked up the stats for the shelter and in August we got 600 cats. When we were looking for our girl, it, the hardest thing was to say no. We had to walk away from four other cats that fit the bill and so many adopters torture themselves looking for the perfect animal and there's no such thing and i always tell them any one of the animals that you're considering you're going to be mostly happy with and there's going to be a few things that bug you about them just know that's going to be the case pull the trigger pick one and chances are you'll be really happy with your choice we were not looking for an adult cat because we thought a kitten would fit into our family better when we had our name down for a kitten that we saw we were going to name him tyrone and when we arrived the date that we were supposed to pick him up there was a little clerical error and there was a gay male couple also who had their name down on tyrone and i said to my partner we are leaving with a cat <laughs> we are not even though we will give them tyrone i think they were afraid when they saw two lesbians that they were going to have to wrestle us for it we let that them have tyrone that was at this shelter in this room having your name down on an animal doesn't actually mean anything mm -hmm. nobody is able to put a hold on an animal we learned that anybody who shows up once they're available has equal shot at getting that it's animal if there's more than one person option, yes they do an and that was going to be the next step and we thought you know what was better is let these guys have this kitten who they obviously adored mm -hmm. and then we yeah. ended up getting as you said not the cat that we were looking for but the perfect cat for us yeah. in the end and i feel you did the right thing i yeah. personally would never auction for an animal yeah. because i know that i'm going to love another one as well Oh, hi, Butch. So Butch is special. Come here, baby. Butch has been here since August. Oh. Butch had cancer. He's a kind of pit bull. I see he's putting on weight. Come on, Butchie. Yes, well, he's wiggling. Nobody and... wants him. Oh, Butchie. I don't know why. Hi, buddy. Treats? Yeah. I love Butch, and I don't know why. Each of the volunteers here, we become an advocate for somebody. Mm. So we'll take photos, we'll put them on the internet, we'll spread them far and wide, and, and let people get to know them. And I only found out a month later, I'm like, why do I bond with this dog? We're not particularly buddies, you know? But I was like, why am I bonding with this dog? And a couple weeks later, they biopsied the little bumps he had, and he had cancer, and I have cancer. So this was meant to be that I was to help Butch. Now, he was very lucky because they not only did surgery on him here, but he is now cancer-free. One of our local Girl Scout troops, they came in and virtually sponsored Butch and another dog, Daisy. So when they're out selling Girl Scout cookies, they're also sharing a flyer of Butch. So when you talk about community groups working together, come here, Swoopy. But he's my, one of my little guys. Oh. Hi, Sassafras. Look how gorgeous Sassafras is. Hi, baby. This is one of Sherry's favorites. I know a lot about these dogs because the volunteers will take pictures and videos and tell their story and put it on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. Here, it's kind of hard to differentiate. But when people write stories and show pictures, that's the other thing. Recently, we've really put all, our all behind our foster program. So we have about 50 active foster homes in the community. And what they'll do is they'll come take a dog out for like a month, from a weekend to a month. Like you could come in if you wanted to foster. 
and take a dog. Like we know on the 4th of July, because of fireworks, dogs run out and we get every year 50 to 60 dogs in over the weekend of the 4th of July, the minute fireworks start. It's just a statistic. So this year when we knew it was coming, we decided to do a huge push on the internet for fosters. And you can call us naive, young, idealistic kids, all of us here, but we were like, they can't kill them if they're not in the shelter, right? Let's get every dog out. The New Hope coordinator who came up with the idea was like, we have the foster program, right? So we put a call on Facebook. We didn't even put it anywhere else yet. And we got people driving up from San Diego. We got every single dog that could leave, that was able to be fostered, out. And of all the city shelters, which there are five, our shelter had no euthanizations that weekend due to overpopulation. Are you doing that again this year? Not only are we doing it again, they were so impressed with what our New Hope coordinator did. They're now making it a policy at all the shelters. So this year, when the 4th of July comes around, every city shelter will be doing, we call it four days for life. That's the power of people and what people can do. The reason we're having such a great rate here lately is now we have fosters from that. So they'll foster for a month, the dog gets adopted, then they take a break, then they oh, let's go in and foster a dog. I mean, what a great lifestyle choice to make. We're going to be foster parents. We're just going to incorporate this into who we are. And for us, talk about being moved to tears. When they send me these photos and it's like, oh, here's the dog that was in a cage for weeks, and now he's sitting at an outdoor cafe having cappuccino with you, and he's on a bed. And then they give us these photos, they give us this biography, and immediately the rescues come in and the adopters come in and they get out. And it's just like you can foster for a weekend. So we have an intervention program. So when people come in and they can't afford to keep their dogs because of money or the medical bills are rising, we send them over instead of, this is to curb the owner surrenders because we do have quite a few owner surrenders. They have low cost vets, free food. When they come to owner surrenders, we'll try to bring them here first. If it's something we can help with, We'll help. Some they can also help with redemptions. If somebody finds their dog here, it escaped and ends up here, but they can't afford the cost to get it back out, the intervention program will often help them get their dog back. Which is huge. And one of the nicest things that they do is if people have a dog that's suffering, that's old or sick or something and suffering and needs to be put down, typically they would bring it here and surrender it, but then the dog has to sit and suffer for at least a certain amount of days before Alone. we can euthanize it yeah. and then it gets euthanized without its loved ones there. The intervention program will give them vouchers to have it done without paying anything. At a vet. At a vet so that they can bring their dog in and be with it. Does it get to you? People always ask, oh, how can you volunteer? Isn't it so sad? And I always tell them the good news far outweighs the bad news, at least at this shelter. Not every shelter has the kind of successes that we have here at East Valley. But I feel that if we didn't have more good than bad, I probably couldn't do it. If I didn't feel that the people who work here and run this place were committed to doing the very best job they could and to helping as many animals as they could, I don't think I could do this. But I firmly believe that they do not want to kill any more animals than they have to, that real thought and consideration goes into every choice that they make and that they're really doing their best. So because of that, I'm able to suck up the bad that happens and really relish the good. But certainly you are seeing a lot of every day. You can't just avoid the fact that people are abandoning their animals and there is cruelty and misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. What I notice of the volunteers is that is how we handle the, the cruelty when they come in. It's, it's mostly the staff here. If you call here and they might be a little short, it's one because they're busy and one because you can't imagine 
what people say to the staff and the questions and the the other day like for example just today they told me somebody came in the other day they looked at a dog they were already adopted and they're like oh we got to pay we thought it was free forget it mm-hmm. and left i mean that's silly but and then the, the horrible abuse case that came in at the end of the day yesterday that shook everyone to their core because you know you just don't know how bad it can be what people can let happen to their dog they said as per usual the person's like oh i just found this dog like they pretend it's not their dog well at least they brought it here and they didn't dump it which you know half the strays we pick up here somebody dumped somewhere especially when they come in and they're a stray and they know sit pretty much every stray dog here had a home we don't have feral dog colonies in this area and most of them have not been on the street for long dogs do not do well on the street long term and if they come in and they are not like emaciated and completely banged and scraped up they probably have only been out on the street for a few days to a week maybe I'm uh, Jake Miller. I'm an animal care technician with the city of Los Angeles, yes. Jake and I do, we task ourselves once a month to photograph as many animals as possible. So I'll be in the room and we'll get a studio light set up and Jake loves them and calms them down and puts them in a good mode. It's hard to photograph them because they're, they're scared, you know, a lot of the time. If you, if you ask a shelter worker about what we do here and how we view our job, it's a very unusual job. We do a lot of talking about how, you know, this is a really great place and yeah, it, it's a shame that the animals show up here. But even then, when you work here and you see this and you deal with people that are bringing in animals, whether it's theirs or not, the important thing to remember is that we're here because the public wants us. That's why we're a municipal animal shelter. We're here by ordinance, so every year we're voted back in by the city council and we continue to get our funds through the city taxes. So when animals here we don't fault anybody for bringing an animal here because that's what we are here for nine times out of ten they're probably coming into a better situation or you're in a situation where you need to keep the roof over the family's head and life happens and that's why we have animal shelters as well so I try to focus on the positive side and I just ask that I never and my co-workers would never demonize somebody for leaving a pet here we just want them to tell us what exactly is going on to be honest with us because if they withhold information about it being their pet and say no it's not mine because they're feeling guilty or whatever it means that we have to hold on to that animal to wait for an owner that's not going to come which then diminishes its chances of getting adopted so it's very important that people are just honest and upfront with us because we can find homes people are scared to come to the shelter they think it's sad and I always tell people the most beautiful examples of humanity like sweetness kindness that which is the best in us I have seen at this shelter what we're doing here is spreading other shelters are picking up some of the ideas that four days for life program that we talked about with fosters on the 4th of July it's not just the other LA animal services shelters that took notice shelters across the country did it became a huge um, viral sensation and people saw how effective it was and they're picking up the ideas we pick up ideas of things that work in other places so the more people talk about it the more they become aware of what's going on the more they can help and make a difference what kind of things can people do like they may not have time to volunteer they may not have money to give or they have a little bit of time to volunteer what are the options for them oh my god (laughs) the number one thing that everyone can do is share a photo or video on social media you know if everyone that hears this right now goes home comes to our facebook page friends of east valley friends of east valley and shares one photo they see there you will save a life i told you the story of that old old dog that was owner surrendered the woman that came in and adopted that dog was from a photo share We took a photo, one person posted it, another person shared it, 
and the woman that came to save that dog saw the second chair. That's true of almost everything here. Four Days for Life was completely done on the internet. And you don't have to come in and foster, but if you share that photo, your 200 friends, your 2,000 friends are going to see that. And that's how we get dogs out. I fell in love with a dog in here, damn chihuahua. And I couldn't get her out of my mind. And every day I put her photo on the internet and somebody shared and somebody shared and somebody shared. And a nice man came and adopted her. And now she's got a better house than me. I'm not bitter. (laughs) But he sent me a photo and it's like this big gorgeous pool in this huge backyard. And I'm like, damn, adopt me. But for one dog to get out of here, sometimes it takes up to seven or eight people. You know, the person that walks it, that cleans it, that loves it, the person that takes the photo that puts it on the internet, that shares it, and then for them to reach the place where they'll be adopted. Talk about a group effort. We can't do this by ourselves, but it's amazing what can be done. That zero euthanization over the 4th of July, that was astounding. But it was nice because it's like, oh, these are all the nice people in LA. J.D. DeSalvatore got to meet all those that she helped save at the Rainbow Bridge when she died of cancer in 2017. But her work with the shelter animals continues through those she inspired. All righty daddy den that's it for tonight. I am Carell, still in Las Vegas. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride and, of course, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow IMRU on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email stevepride at stevepride.com. That's steve, P-R-I-D-E, at stevepride.com. For more information on MOA, just go to reallycorell, R-E-A-L-L-Y-K-A-R-E-L.com. It is reallycorell on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, and of course on YouTube. It's youtube.com forward slash reallycorell. Go and subscribe. As a reminder, IMRU is a global podcast as well as a broadcast from KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear their weekly show posted at kpfk.org. Also catch IMRU at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Cast. All right, we will take you out with Undercover Summer from Tom Goss. Good night, good morning, good afternoon, wherever or whenever you're listening. And remember, be who you want to be so long as it doesn't hurt anybody.
records, playing hard and long In our shagging wagon, to our favorite song We're spinning records, playing hard and long In our shagging wagon, to our favorite song (laughs) 